uniquely personal, but also a spirit of intercession for our city and our community. Um, and then we're going to end with a song that turns back to reminding uh, ourselves that God did not leave us alone. He gave us a Redeemer and He gave us His Holy Spirit. And we're going to turn that into a prayer. So I invite you to go through the journey this morning with us uh, in that way.
would you just keep us in that place of worship this morning, reminding ourselves of who you are, reminding ourselves of what you do. We pray, Lord, renew your deeds in these days for our people and for the city.
voices sing thank you together and thank you oh my father for giving us your son and leaving your spirit Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to continue the work here on earth, to continue to navigate. Hi, my name is Courtney, and I am the children's director here at the South. 
Here is your family news for this week. We are one week into our 21 days of prayer. There are many opportunities for us to gather as a church family to pray together for our families, our church, and our communities, including an online prayer time every weekday at 7 a.m. On Wednesdays, we also have a prayer gathering at our Rutland location from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Peter Jackson, um, and I will be reading today from the book of Mark, chapter 1, starting at the 29th verse. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Well, good morning, church. Let's uh, again, I've already said that. I'm getting all caught up here. So just give me one second. Um, would somebody be able to just move the TV? For everybody at home who's watching online, my lovely assistant. Oh, both of them. Both my lovely assistants. If you are joining us online, then uh, we're so grateful that you're doing that. I know many of you do message me in the week and let me know uh, that you're watching. We're so grateful you're doing that, especially in these uncertain times. We completely understand. We love you. We miss you. And uh, we're glad that we have the ability to be able to come and join with you uh, in studying the Word of God, even in, you know, the technology just allows us to do that. And we're very grateful. So, uh, so welcome. Thank you, both of you. That's amazing. I'm just going to push this out of the way so that uh, there's one thing we do really well around here is we're so slick. It's what you love about us, right? Okay, good. Um, Right, well, we're, uh, if we're going to jump straight in, we've got a lot of work to do this morning. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, I'm going to keep you a long time, but I'm, I really, this message is in two sections. Um, one of the things that I want to make sure, that we want to make sure that we do at, uh, at Willow Park is we want to make sure you understand what it means to follow Jesus, uh, but then how do you do it? This is a very, very practical message. Last week, those of you who weren't with us last week, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's message because it really frames this mini-series that we're going through over the next few weeks uh, called Rhythms, and uh, we're doing it specifically now because of 21 days of prayer. Uh, we want to teach you and show you how you can really enjoy connecting into God and enjoying His presence. Last week, uh, just very quick recap, I talked about two different narratives. I talked about the narrative 
of our culture, which is very much that you are a consumer, you're a user, you're uh, somebody who we, the, the culture just wants to get something from, that the culture reduces you down into purely being like a commodity. And we talked about marketing, we talked about all the different ways that we can see that happening. Just by waking up in the morning, it, it happens by default. Then I talked about the, uh, the narrative of the Bible, completely opposite to that, that actually you have been created with worth, with value, that yes, we're broken, that sin is in the world, but underlying it all is a fingerprint of God on your life, and that enjoying his presence on a day-to-day -day basis does the exact opposite of reducing you. It actually encourages you to live in that more, that sense that we all have as human beings, that there's more to life than what we're experiencing now. And often we place uh, the, uh, the answer to that uh, in our activities, in our possessions, in our goals, in our dreams, that if we could just fulfill those things, then ultimately we're going to find that echo, as C.S. Lewis uh, talks about, this echo of a tune, this far-off land, that we're going to discover what we've been created for only to find out that the more we live and the more stuff we get and the more dreams that are fulfilled, we're still wanting, we still feel that echo, we still feel that gap. And God in his glory and his mercy and his deep love for us fills that echo, fills that gap. And, uh, and we left off last week really asking the question, well, uh, how do we uh, step into that presence? This week, I was going to talk about Sabbath. And uh, as I started studying Sabbath and rest, I just kept on coming back to this subject that I actually want to address before next week. We're looking at scripture and meditation, and then likely the week after we'll talk about rest and Sabbath. This is really important this week. This is a very practical message. It's all, it feels almost like spiritual coaching, if there was such a thing. This is not a deep expositional uh, uh, teaching from a scripture, and you know, those of you who've been around long enough know I love doing that, and that is our norm. This is, this is a tool to put into your spiritual tool belt, if you like, uh, that you can go away and immediately start stepping into all that God has created you for, and that beautiful sense of his presence that he wants you to have each day in your life. And so thank you, Peter, for uh, reading those, that uh, lovely scripture where just in summary, you have Jesus doing what Jesus did so beautifully well. He, he went and he healed people and he was just a, an imparter of health and healing in every aspect of the word. And then you've got this in the second part of the scripture, you've got all these people being brought to Jesus. You can imagine in your mind's eye what that would have looked like that these literally throngs of people, chaotic uh, time where people would just have been desperate to have gotten near Jesus. And it says in verse 34, uh, sorry, 33, the whole town gathered at the door. Now, these towns were very small. They might have only been a couple, 300 people. You're not talking about all the Kelowna, open your front door, and there's 150,000 people stood there. That's scary and amazing thought all at the same time. For all of you introverts in, in the listening of just suddenly going, uh, for the more extroverts, it's like, yeah, party, let's bring it on with your masks. Thank you very much. Um, this two, 300 people likely gathered outside of Jesus' door, waiting for him, the whole town looking to him for answer, for healing, for health, for wholeness for something of that echo that they feel that they hear from a far-off land, as C.S. Lewis said, listen to last week's message, that the answer somehow is in Jesus, the way. Verse 34, and Jesus healed many uh, who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then verse 35, this is the one that I really want to, in the light of those two verses, and very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Right in the middle of Jesus' activity, in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' job, and forgive me for putting it in these terms, for Jesus' business, going about his father's business, his business, Jesus stopped, he got up early in the morning, and he disappeared into a solitary place. Here we have in this one verse, 
the real secret to Jesus' busy activity, uh, you see the secret of his ministry and activity that is actually fueled in this moment. It is not fueled when he opens that front door and sees the crowd. And as pastors, I'm going to confess in front of you all, we love crowds. As I've said a number of times, pastors love big churches. Uh, Most congregants like small churches. (laughs) It's a bit of a disconnect. We love the crowds. And really, there's nothing wrong with crowds because for me, I see it as an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel. And and I've had uh, over the last almost 30 years, wonderful opportunities of preaching to thousands and preaching to the ones. It's, it's amazing. But that's not what Jesus' focus is on. Jesus' focus in this moment is to get up very early. While it was still dark, he left the house and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. If you're thinking, I'm going to preach a prayer this morning. You see, Jesus went from the chaos of the moment to a quiet stillness. He went from many people... To solitude, not isolation. There's a big difference. He went from probably intense questions, Jesus, 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 would you, could you, please, to silence. Is it possible that the antidote of the busyness of our world, regardless of your age, doesn't matter, I'm not talking about people who are just working, I'm talking about people, humanity, whether you're a teenager, preteen, or whether you're somebody on the other end spectrum of life, Is it possible that the antidote to the busyness of our world is hidden in plain sight? That it's not new systems, it's not new apps, it's not new management, it's not new process. It's not the latest book, the latest self-help series, it's not that latest online course. Nothing wrong with any of those. It's not help from family members, it's not a change of boss, it's not a difference in your marriage, none of those places. Is it possible that the antidote to the busyness of our world is hidden in the silence and solitude that Jesus is actually given an example of here? See, he made a habit of withdrawing, and I've said this to you a number of times, but if you read through the Gospels, and you read it through, and I encourage you to do this, it won't take you long, to read through the Gospels and see what the practices and habits of Jesus seem to be. Not just his words, but what did he do on a regular basis? One of the things you're going to see emerge very, very quickly is that he would often withdraw, Luke 5, verse 16, to a desolate place and pray. This word, desolate place, is the Greek word for eremos, and and it literally means solitary place, or a solitary place that provides needed quiet. A quiet place, a lonely place, quite literally a desolate place. And again, in Matthew chapter, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 6, you see it again. And he said to them, come away by yourselves. This is now Jesus telling his apprentices, his disciples. Now, you've seen what I do. I get up early in the morning while it is still dark and I withdraw and I pray, is what Jesus would say. We can see that in Mark chapter 1. Now he's telling his apprentices, his disciples, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, same word, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They were so busy, they couldn't even eat. And in the midst of that, what's Jesus say? He doesn't say, hey, 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 all right, first thing we're going to do is we're going to hit McDonald's. Let's go. No, he says, more important than eating itself is to get away by yourself where it is quiet in a desolate place, in a quiet place, in silence and in solitude. And, And that is really the discipline that I'm talking about. And friends, it is perhaps one of the most difficult, outside of prayer, one of the most difficult things for us to actually make a habit and a practice of in our lives. One of the most difficult things. Just being quiet and silent and solitude is a balm in a noisy world that is constantly becking and pinging and dinging, and buzzing, and giving us beautiful opportunity to listen to amazing things constantly. And sometimes they're not so amazing things. Maybe it's a, an 18-month amazing thing. But they're just the constant noise that constantly beckons to be able to switch off that noise, including talking, 
and to get away from it all and silence. Now, I know some of you, especially those of you who've got little ones, are going, yeah, right. <laughs> nice one. No chance. No chance. Well, first of all, I, I refer to my credentials. We, too, had little ones. Uh, they didn't emerge six foot two like Jack did. Uh, and amen to that. We did have little ones. I loved what Jackie and Keenan both said a couple of weeks ago. If you didn't hear those testimonies, it was, it was beautiful. I don't know if Jackie and Jason are here. But yeah, there's Jackie's right there. Hi, Jackie. Jackie said this. She said, it's kind of like popcorn. She said, you just take the bits when you can. Now, I think about popcorn when I'm in the movie theater and I get a big fistful and just shove it in my face and hopefully most of it ends up in my mouth and not in the lap of the person behind. But just that, that analogy of just taking bits of time when you can, I love that. And I'd love to be able to speak more into that. Keenan talked about being faithful, about little things. And I think that's really, really important. So don't, don't hear what I'm saying this morning as an immediate impossibility to fit into your life. Because actually it is possible. It is possible because they do eventually fall asleep. Eventually. And then quickly followed by you, granted, parents, I know that. I was telling the story a few weeks ago to, uh, uh, to I, th I think it might have been Alison and Zolt, I'm not sure. But I remember when Zoe was very young. Zoe was one of those kids who just didn't sleep. Like, how many of you had a baby who's like, no, don't need that? Really? Is that all? Okay. Um, yeah, I don't need to sleep. Sleeps, uh, sleeps for wimps. That's what Zoe kind of thought. And she's right there, right in front of me. And I remember... I remember that we were so desperate as young uh, parents, just like with this beautiful little button of a child, just fall asleep. Because as soon as she slept, we slept. And so we found out, though, that when she was about 12 months old, she would start sleeping really, really well in the car. So on the way back from church, she would, she would fall asleep in the car. And so then we got home, and the first thing we would do, we didn't have electric garage door openers then. The electric garage door opener was, Sarah, would you go on up? Um, is that you open the garage door and they were always really squeaky and nasty and sometimes they didn't open evenly so you do this just so quietly hoping that she would stay asleep and then we'd drive in then we'd really quietly close the door and then we'd get a baby monitor out we'd leave the baby monitor in the car and then Sarah and I would go in the house and go to bed oh it's so good it's amazing the number of hours that Zoe spent asleep in the garage and she's fine, she's here, and I'm saying it publicly online that, you know, again, I'm sure that that would be frowned upon, and I don't recommend it. I'm just saying that, you know, at that time, it was just like, this kid's just, please let's sleep. I get it. I know what it's like having a child, but you've got to take those moments when you can to withdraw in silence and solitude. Jesus said it's a habit that he put into his life, and you're going to see it time and time and time again. And he says, and he acknowledges, you can see it in the scripture, he acknowledges that this is a difficult, if not seemingly impossible task. Look at this scripture from Matthew 14. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew, there's that word again, from there in a boat to a desolate place, same word, Eremos, by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. A little later on in the chapter, it says this. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So you're seeing two things here. You're seeing Jesus, first of all, being flexible. You're seeing Jesus being gentle with himself. Okay, I was really hoping to have some quiet time here by myself in solitude in a desolate place. These crowds had other ideas. That's okay. But I am going to dismiss the crowd, second thing. So not only is he gentle with himself, he's also working at this. He's actually putting things into his life. He's taking action steps in order to secure the silence and solitude that he knows that he needs in order to function from the level of ministry that is required of him. And so as Christians, you have been given a calling. It may not look exactly like Jesus, although I could argue that there is a great deal of similarities to our calling in the world and Jesus' calling. But your calling in this moment of time is unique to you in your sphere, in your time, in your place, in your experience, in your shape, as Rick Warren says it, your gifting, experiences, all this stuff. You have a calling. 
In order for you to be wildly successful and thrive in that calling, there is a basic requirement. And without this requirement, you will never, underlined in bold, fulfill the calling of God in your life. You will never be able to live out the narrative of the Bible that is an antidote to the narrative of this culture. You will always, if you remember the continuum I drew for you, you will always be leaning more to culture than away from culture towards freedom. And that thing... That practice is silence and solitude. Friends, with all of my urging and encouragement, I would encourage you to make this a priority, to dismiss the crowds, no matter how little they are, to to make carve-out time, to be persistent, but also be gentle with yourself, just like Jesus was gentle with the crowds. He didn't get angry with the crowds. He heard it. They followed him on foot from the towns. He spent time with the crowds. He was gentle with himself. And you will find, the good news is, is that you will move into different stages of your life where it will look different. It might be that you just have to be really creative right now to find that silence and solitude, but find it you must. See, we breathe out and we breathe in. We breathe out activity. We breathe out energy. We breathe out all those things that we've been called to. But there has to come a time when we breathe in. And some of you, I think, right now feel like all you're doing is breathing out. And it's time to go (gasps) and breathe in. And it might be a bit of a shock to you because you're not used to breathing in. Breathing in of taking that time with the Lord in silence and solitude by yourself. With nothing switched on, nothing dinging, nothing vibrating, nothing constantly beckoning, just by yourself. You have to have that. Now, there have been a number of times over the last few years where I have shared with you the beauty, the impact, the, the kind of eighth wonder of the world level of Rill in North Wales. Rill, for those of you who are new, is the town that Sarah and I were first called to pastor. It's on the North Wales coast. And at that time, and I've been told by some very indignant uh, Rillites, I don't know if that's a word, um, that I know are probably watching right now, uh, that is much improved. But when we were there in the early 90s, it was not improved. It was pretty bleak. And I do remember being on the, on the North Wales coast. They had a problem with pollution at that time. And, and I could go into a great deal of detail and put you off your lunch, and I won't. But there was a beauty about Rill that I've never really uh, described before. It's when the tide went out. The tide would go out quite a long way. And I don't know, those of you who know anything about tides, not being on a coastal town, you may not, but tides have got this amazing, beautiful rhythm to them, all dictated to by the fingerprint of God, the perfect placement of the moon, and and everything else. There's a tide goes out, there's a tide that comes in, and it's just this rhythm throughout the whole year. And so once the tide goes out at real, you could actually go a long way out, and you you could look back, and there'd be hundreds of yards of sand behind you. And it was very, and you could do the ripple on the sand. It was, it was really actually quite beautiful. But you have to time it really well. Because there comes a point where the tide suddenly turns. And for some places in the world, that can come in really quickly. And you can find yourself cut off. And this used to happen regularly on the North Wales coast, where young people especially would move out with the tide, think everything's fine, but not realize they're actually on a slightly raised ground. So when they turn up, they actually see that the tide has cut them off, and then they're stranded with literally a piece of land getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually we get themselves in significant trouble. It's an amazing picture of life. Then it might be that you are so used to just walking out the activity of life that you're getting further and further away where true life is, only to discover that now you feel stranded, that you feel you look back and you see channels of water, impossibilities, things that just make you go, there's no way that I'm ever going to get back to where I need to be with God. Sometimes these channels are self-made channels. Sometimes they're just the channels of life where water just seems to cut you off. Their life cuts you off from the presence of God. Can I encourage you that maybe even this morning it's time to pause and to look and in faith go, I need to get back. I need to breathe in. I need, I've, the tide has gone out. I need to allow the tide to come in because that was the rhythm that Jesus lived in. To be able to hear his voice over all other noise and in the midst of that you come face to face with yourself. 
If you've not written anything else down, I would encourage you to remember to take a picture of, to remember that statement face-to-face with ourselves. Our world is geared, our cultural narrative is geared towards making sure that you do not get by yourself because I believe in, part, in, 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 in some way that when we get by ourselves, we actually come face-to-face with ourselves. That when we get by ourselves and all other shepherds' voices are taken away, all other influences, all other noises taken away, you get the whisper of reality as to what is actually going on inside our own souls. That God whispers. And you would be stunned at how quickly it happens. And Satan, the enemy, the true enemy of this world, will do everything he can to keep you in noise because he knows as soon as the whisper into the soul comes, when the Spirit of God starts speaking to you through silence and solitude, there is a transformation that happens, that conviction comes. There's confession after conviction, and then there's this closeness, the presence of God, and then there's a change that happens. And then the tyranny of all that is rushing around you All that distraction submits to God and to you, and you suddenly become master hand in hand with the God who created you to be. Because you have put a time aside in silence and solitude to listen to the whisper of God, because that's what you were created to be, just like Jesus. And so Satan makes sure that our life is filled with so much noise and activity and distraction. You actually never get to that place. Some of you, perhaps, and I say this humbly and lovingly, you might have gotten so far away from the coast that you've even forgotten what that's like. And as it says in Revelation, that you have forgotten your first love. Can I tell you there's a beckoning? There's that sound of an echo that is gently pulling towards you back towards the shore. And in that moment, you'll suddenly find this beauty that is so incredibly described in Psalm 62. My soul finds rest in God alone. If you just breathe that in and out. Do you know Satan is so clever that he's even taken breathing away from us? Do you know what I mean by that? As soon as I, as a pastor, stand up and say, you know what? If you just take some deep breaths in silence at home by yourself, just breathe in deeply, Breathe out deeply. Maybe do that 10 times. Alarm bells start going. Am I right? Ooh, that sounds a bit Eastern. Is is that new age? Is breathing new age? Is my pastor a new age pastor? Because he mentioned breathing at the beginning of prayer time. Okay, so everybody everybody take a breath. (laughs) God invented breathing. In Genesis 3, you see God breathing into and actually, you, talk about, you look into that word. It's an amazing word. And I talked about it last week. You know that it's actually a biological. We've got doctors in the congregation. Maybe I should set up Dr. Derek later, and you can consult and agree. You need to breathe. And breathing calms you and allows you just to go, okay, I'm going to focus on Jesus. Not on emptying your mind. Everybody take a breath. Okay, but actually filling your mind with scripture and thoughts of God and praying because you've just breathed for a bit, that's okay. I promise you it's okay. And it would be a bit silly you leaving a church because your pastor said that you should breathe more. Just breathe. Take a moment. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him, not from my phone, not from my friends, not from my marriage, not from my, uh, my relationships, not my business, not my bank account. My salvation comes from him alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. When you find rest and silence and solitude in God, the fruit that appears is beautiful. Now, I could go on further, painting a picture of the beauty that you will find in silence and solitude, but I know that innately as human beings, we kind of know that what I'm saying is true. I don't need to convince you of the merits of silence and solitude. Some of you are going, yes! How? How do I actually do it? So one of the books that I recommended in the reading list that uh, Jenny put onto Instagram, if you're not on Instagram, it's worth joining Instagram just to get this reading list. Um, we're on Instagram, and it's at WP South. 
and uh, you'll find a bit of a reading list that's connected to this series on there. One of the books that I placed in there is not, has not been written by uh, a Christian. <gasps> it's, it's amazing to find that actually there's some really good books out there that aren't, aren't written by Christians. And so I always put this beautiful caveat that there's always something we can find that's helpful, even if we don't agree with everything we read in the book. That said, you would be hard-pushed to read this book and find anything in there that doesn't align with Scripture. Scripture's a long way ahead of most self-help. But this book that I want to point you to, and and a lot of what I'm going to share in the next few minutes has comes from uh, this book, is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Atomic Habits by James Clear. And what he's done is is a brilliant... Uh, synopsis of the power of habit in your life. So Jesus had a habit of silence and solitude. He says, you come and you will find rest for your weary soul. There is refreshment. There is renewal. It sets you up for the world. It gives you energy. It opens awareness and your eyes. And your relationship with God is reliant on it at all stages of life. So the how, the how is so, so important. A few uh, years ago, well, actually in 2002, Sarah and I, uh, we found ourselves kind of wrestling with an interesting thought that had kind of come to my mind at a time that was incredibly inconvenient. Um, It was actually a time where as a family, we were going through crisis. Sarah's dad was extremely ill with cancer at the time that ultimately Jesus took him home uh, a few months after that in early 2003. I was uh, was working as uh, full-time in administration as a teacher, and, and I was all, we were also pastoring a church plant that was growing. It was very, we had two little children. It was very, very busy. And in the middle of it, God, in his wisdom, went, Canada. And I went, ooh. And Sarah went, no. No, I don't think so. So me being the wise pastoral husband that I am, <clears throat> didn't try and talk her into it. Actually, I might have a little bit. But eventually I got the, the message when Sarah said to me, look, Glenn, I can't talk about this right now. There's too much going on. And I said, okay, I understand. You know, as husbands, or maybe it's just a Glenn, did it actually you, you feel like you have to get too far down the line to pick up the message that was really clear right at the beginning? And if I'd been smart enough, I would have picked it up and saved all this grief. I'm always here. And so I, I went there with Canada, and then Sarah went, no, I went, okay back off. And I did back off. And I said, you know, we'll just wait and see what the Lord is saying. And I remember that literally the evening that we said, we're going to put all this on hold. There's too much going on. I went, fine. I went upstairs, switched on the computer, sat down, and there was an email from a gentleman called Ray Sutton, who was the headmaster of Pacific Academy in Vancouver. Never heard of the guy. And it said, would, be interest, would you be interested in uh, this role that we've got as a director and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, Lord, I have to show this to Sarah. Because literally, in the space of going upstairs, I feel like that prayer was just answered. So we went down and cut a long story short. By August of that year, we'd sold a house, two cars, a trailer van, closed down our lives, and had moved to Vancouver and started a new life there. That was in 2003. If there was ever a moment that was defining, it was that moment. And we have in our mind that for massive change to happen, there has to be a massive action. But actually, what you'll read in this book, and as I reflect on it in my own life, yes, that was a massive change. But the most significant massive change that has happened has not become from defining moments. It's come from small moments in my life. It's come from that slight change in my daily habit or outlook that guides my life to a very different destination. It's those small incremental changes that we make that result in massive change, not massive action leading to massive change. Those slight changes that give us the privilege of being able to look back in wonder and go, wow, those last 20 years... I used to be that way, now I'm this way. I used to think this way, now I think that way. And there's not one defining moment. Sometimes the Lord is very gracious and gives us a life-changing defining moment. That's wonderful. But oftentimes it's those little incremental habit changes. And the reverse is true. 
that the positive change can happen from positive habits, but negative change can also happen through a slow but persistent poor habit in your life. And so when I say to you, put silence and solitude into the habit of your life, what I'm suggesting to you is actually starting off with a very small thing that will ultimately lead to such a radical change in your life. The problem is, is that is a, can be a long way into the future. A good example is if, we, if I tomorrow morning go for a 20 minutes, this is in the book, if you go for a 20 minute run, I am not now a marathon runner. I can't say in all honesty, because I went for a 15-minute run, I am now a runner. Yeah, in your dreams, pal. No chance. Any more so that if I started to study German, that after an hour I can speak German uh, uh, fluently. That's not going to happen. I, I'm not a German speaker. Just because I can bash out chopsticks on the piano for 20 minutes, much to everybody's joy and excitement, that doesn't make me a pianist. Sitting in God's presence in silence and solitude for 20 minutes tomorrow morning, you still may not feel that intimacy and peace that you seek. But given time, given discipline, you'll find that the discipline turns into celebration, that turns into joy, that turns into life change. Where suddenly, and forgive me the analogy, you are a marathon runner. Now this is not about this idea that you do in order to get any more than I'm spending time with Sarah in order to get something from her. I spend time with Sarah on a regular basis because I love her, and being around her just brings joy into my life. Exactly the same with silence and solitude with God, that we prioritize it not in order to get something from God, but because God is the one that breathed life into us, and he is, as Jesus said, he is the vine. So what we do is if results don't come quickly, you might go, you know what? I've had a Bible reading plan now for three weeks. I've just got up and I've looked and I've read a verse of the Bible every morning for the last three weeks. And I've read out the little Devo. I've still got problems. What is going on? I did my bit, God. Time for you to do your bit, me feels. Because I am dedicated to my one verse every morning. That's not how it works. <laughs> but to sit, to not look at the results and then drift back to our previous routines because it doesn't feel different is the height of immaturity. This is what James Clear said in this book. Your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. And your clutter is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. You get what you repeat. I like that. If you want to predict where you'll end up in life, all you have to do is follow the curve of tiny gains or tiny losses and see how your daily choices will compound 10 or 20 years down the line. He then shares this story. In 2003, the British cycling team hired a gentleman called Dave Brailsford. The British cycling team had not won anything other than one gold medal at the Olympics since 1908. They had not won the Tour de France in 110 years. One, they were so bad that one manufacturer actually refused to sell bikes to them because they didn't want to be associated with the British cycling team. That's pretty bad. Dave Brailsford came onto the team, and he started something called, quote, the aggregation of marginal gains. The whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improve it by 1%, you will get significant increase when you put them all together. So what he did was this. It's really fascinating, especially if you like riding bikes like I do. He made the seats more comfortable. The team heated the shorts to maintain ideal muscle temperature. I just like the idea of that in general life. That's amazing. They made slight changes in the fabrics in the wind tunnel. They changed the massage gels to improve muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach them how to wash their hands properly so they stopped getting sick as much. They changed the pillows and the mattresses to improve their sleep, and they painted everything white so they could spot the dust really quickly so the dust didn't end up in the mechanism of the bike. 
By 2000, and there was lots more incremental changes. Again, it's in this book, Atomic Habits. By 2008, the team dominated cycling in five years. They had won five Tour de France victories in six years. And from 2007 to 2017, they had won 178 world championships and 66 Olympic, uh, sorry, world level championships and 66 Olympic gold medals. Because they painted stuff white and washed their hands more. So here's why I'm sharing all this, friends. It's because there's this beautiful, wonderful thing that you have at your disposal called habit stacking. That instead of looking, right, I need to spend three hours with the Lord every day, what you can actually do is break it down into what are the 1% changes I can make. And this habit stacking allows you to actually do it. Again, it's in this book. I think you get the idea. I keep referring to it because I want you to know you can find it in the book. And James Clear, maybe you can give me a cup of your coffee. What the principle is this, and I'm going to finish with this, and it's a bizarre way for me to finish normally because I want to bring it round back to what the Lord is saying, but the principle is this. We decide what to do next based on what we have just finished doing. So, one hopes you go to the washroom and you immediately what? Wash your hands. Only three of you said that. That's a worry. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But you, wash, you, you go to the toilet, you wash your hands. Maybe you brush your teeth, you immediately floss. Yeah, right. Um, then you immediately do something else. Then you immediately, so here's what happens to me when I get up in the morning. I'm usually up between 5 and 5.30 in the morning, not by choice necessarily, but that's just the way it is. The first thing I do is I do what I need to do in the bathroom and I go downstairs. Why am I going to this detail? I just want to show you something. So I go around the top of my stairs. I've actually become cognitive of this, and I want you to do the same. Take this liturgical audit, this habit audit. I come around the stairs. The first thing I do is to put uh, the, the light on downstairs. And then I normally look straight at Maggie who's in a cage like that, ready to come out. I go down the stairs. I open the baby gate because I've said Maggie. I turn around and I close the baby gate. I come around the corner. I head. The first thing I do is put the coffee machine on. Coffee machine starts heating up. I go over to Maggie. I open the cage. Maggie comes out, completely ignores me. Head straight to the back door. Open the back door, let the dog out, close the back door, go around into the kitchen, and then the first thing I do is take some supplements, and then I get my mug. I take my mug, I put it in the coffee machine, I put the water on. Then I go and grind some beans. Then I get the beans. By that time, I've taken the wand out of the coffee machine, I've filled it in the wand, I've pressed it down, and then I put it in, and I press go. Then I sit and wait for Maggie to appear by the back door, because by that time, she's gone to the toilet and washed her hands, one hopes. I let her in. She comes in, she immediately heads to the baby gate because she wants to go upstairs. Baby gate's closed. By that time, the coffee is finished. I grab my coffee, I go into my study, I sit down, and I breathe <gasps> in a non-New Age way. Then I open up my Bible. I have not yet looked at my phone. I open up my Bible, I sit, and I just quiet myself, and I start reading the Scripture. Those are my habits. From the first 10, 15 minutes of the day... Here's what habit stacking does. You slot in a habit in something you already are doing. If you can start practicing a habit where you identify what your rhythm in the morning is and you slot a new habit into two firmly established habits, then psycho um, neuroscience tells us that the neuropathways will start increasing because they've already got two strong neuropathways. So if you want to do push-ups, then I should do push-ups between me grabbing the coffee and putting it in the coffee machine. Do push-ups right then, because I'll start associating push-ups with coffee, which is not a bad thing for me. I'll be doing lots of push-ups. Do you see where I'm getting at? So instead of actually saying, look, I'm going to change my whole life, make a 1% change by slotting something into what you already do in your life and go, that is the moment. What does that look like? I've just dropped the kids off at school. What's the first thing I do? Switch the radio on? Become conscious as to what you do. Maybe at that moment, you actually start praying. Pray for your kids. It's a new habit. You're slotting into an old habit. Does that make sense? So it's really interesting when you start looking at the habits that you do on a daily basis and start looking at how you can, forgive me for putting it this way, slotting in the presence of God into those habits and becoming conscious and aware of his presence in those moments. It is beautifully simple and incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. So when I get to work in the morning, uh, and Cheryl sat there, she knows this. She's usually there a little bit earlier than me. I'm trying to beat her. One day I will. Um, 
I closed my door in my office, switched my uh, light on, and then I take a minute or two just to sit or to stand and pray. I slotted that habit in using this principle. You see, the Lord, when he says, come follow me, what he's saying is you need to change the habits of your life and become like he comes, like start doing what he does. So as we peer into Jesus' life, we see the practices and the habits and the lifestyles that we can follow. And then what we need to do is reflect on the lifestyle, habits, liturgies, that practices that we already have, reject the ones that don't belong, and put into the ones that ultimately will draw us close to the life giver himself. That's really exciting to me. So here's what I would love for you to consider this week. In the light of all that I've said about the joy and the power in finding silence and solitude, place silence and solitude into the habit of your life this week. Don't do it today unless what you do today can be a habit you can repeat tomorrow. But tomorrow, place in some silence and solitude, even if it's a 1%, even if it's just a few minutes of you just quietly sitting and praying and enjoying the presence of God. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. And what you'll find is, is that Lord and the Lord and his love and his beauty will draw you closer and closer to him. And, and you'll find that you'll just want to do more and more and more. So rather than starting with three hours and praying for every missionary that you can think of tomorrow morning at 4 a.m., actually just start by when you drop the kids off or when you first get into your office. When you first sit down in the morning, just start there and see where the Lord takes you. I find that really exciting because I know he'll take you somewhere beautiful. I really do. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to ask you to uh, stand with me. And we're actually going to, if Jared, it's okay. We're, not, we're, we're just going to pray if that's okay. And because uh, I'm conscious that we're going to have a little chat after the service, and I want to give time for that. So um, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray something really simple and beautiful that, that the Lord will speak to you directly about this message. Next week, we're going to be looking at Bible reading and meditation and the practice of that, and then the next week, we'll look at rest and Sabbath, which is something that I've learned the hard way and, and something that's just really changed our lives, I would say, as a family. So lots to look forward to. Let's close our eyes. If you're listening online still, let's just take a moment. Lord, we confess that in just literally those few seconds of silence, that Lord, that for some, it's really uncomfortable, it's unusual, it's different. And Lord, we confess that in many ways we allow the busyness and the chaos and the noise of the world to invade our lives. And Lord, oftentimes we feel cut off from the shore. And so Lord, I just invite you now in this beautiful moment that Lord, you would just whisper to us all, whisper to those listening online, that Lord, you would do what only you could do, which is draw yourself, uh, draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray for transformation. I pray for change. I pray, Lord, that we would become a church family, a people, not just of the word and of prayer and as wonderful and important as that is, but, Lord, we would become people of silence and solitude and rest. That, Lord, we would find rest for our souls in you, Lord Jesus, the true author of salvation. And, Lord, I pray that as a church body this week, that, Lord, that we would be able to habit stack. <laughs> that, Lord, that we would be able to place you as priority in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would become aware of the habits that we, we partake in on a daily basis and look at them and think, how can I prioritize you, Jesus? 
Lord, I'm so thankful that as we, as we pursue you, your promise is that you pursue us. And so, Lord, I'm just so grateful for the promise that, Lord, that your burden is light, your yoke is easy, and we will find rest for our souls. Because, Lord, in this chaotic culture that we find ourselves in, Lord, we need that rest and security that comes only from you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen.